Will you guys pray with me real quick? Lord, I just thank you for your presence today. And God, I ask that your word would not return void, that it would accomplish everything what you sent it to accomplish. Let our hearts be open to hear your voice today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking, you know, a lot of times we come to church and we think that it was our own choice. Really, it's not. You're here because God wants you to be here. And I firmly believe with what God's shown me as I've studied for this word that he gave me, that he has a specific word for every single person that's here today. So I just really hope you take it in. But we're going to jump right into God's word. This is John 1, 1 through 5 is what we're going to start with. It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. I want to pause there. So the word was with God. And then it says he existed in the beginning. Jesus is the word. The word is Jesus. And it goes on to say, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. See, it's all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And when we're not conscious of that fact, when we're just kind of living our lives and humdrumming through our days and never or rarely giving a conscious thought to God and his purpose for our lives, we miss out on so much. It says the light, the light that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And for me, that's comforting because there's a lot of negative things in my life that I could focus on. There's honestly a lot of messy stuff that could easily pull me down. And I think that's true for all of us. There's a lot of stuff that could derail us and take us off the path that God has for us. You know, for me, it was my dad's suicide 24 years ago. And then more recently, my brother's suicide. I mean, those are some pretty dark things. And believe me, the enemy has tried to use those things to steal the light of Jesus in my life. But it can't be done. The light of Jesus cannot be extinguished. And then... The past few weeks have been really challenging. Um, some of you know this already, but Joel, our six-year-old, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so he, right now he's on insulin shots. Hopefully, eventually, that'll change to a pump, which will be nice. But, you know, to be honest, for parents especially, like, it's hard not to be overcome with worry and fear day in and day out. I've had to battle those things a lot. And to be honest, without the word... Without Jesus, I would be a nut job seven out of seven days <laughs> instead of the two out of seven that I am. Jared would probably say four out of seven. <laughs> he might be right. <laughs> but because, listen, th this crap is too much for me to handle. It is. Your crap is too much for you to handle. But listen to what God says. We don't have to handle it on our own. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. I mean, how amazing is that? When I look to God, he will instruct me. He will teach me. He'll even counsel me free of charge. I don't have to pay him. That gives me hope. We all need hope. 
what do people do without it? What do people do without hope? Well, people who lose hope lose their lives. And sometimes that's literal. And I'm telling you from experience that suicide is a result of all hope that's lost. So sometimes people literally lose their lives. And then there's people who might not lose their physical lives, but they've lost the will to live, meaning they might be alive, but they're really not living. We all need hope to get through this life. Psalm 62, 5 through 6 says, Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. See, hope didn't come from us. It's not something that man thought up one day. Actually, it's not even explainable through science or philosophy. And in fact, psychologists aren't even sure how to classify it. They say it's not an emotion. So, so what is hope? Well, the truth is we can go back to the Old Testament and find exactly what hope is because hope is the very presence of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about his presence. So just for a few minutes, I want to go back to the desert and I want to find Jesus and I want to find hope. So when the Israelites were wandering through the desert for 40 years after God had delivered them from Egypt, um, God had instructed Moses to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was to be a place for the Israelites to worship God properly. And I think we have a picture of the tabernacle. Maybe, is it up? Somewhere? Anyone? <laughs> there it is. Okay, so the tabernacle consisted of the outer courts. And anyone could go in those outer courts. And then there's the tent that you see. Now, within the tent, and we have another picture, inside of that tent were two rooms. The first room, the one that's kind of the, the black and white one, that was called the holy place. And then the room beyond that, behind the curtain, is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. That contains the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant has the Ten Commandments. And only a high priest, who was Aaron, Moses' brother at that time, could enter that room. And he could only go in there once a year, on the Day of Atonement, to offer a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. And if you look at this, this old stuff in the Old Testament, the scripture, it says that he had to do it exactly right, exactly the way the Lord told him to, or he would be struck dead. Thank goodness it was only once a year, or he probably would have died. Um, and as much as I'd like to get into all this, um, I can't. I have to narrow it down. So let's go back to the first room. In that first room... Um, any of the priests could enter. So Aaron and his sons, his sons were the priests of the tribes of Israel. So any of them could enter that room. And in that room was a table, and it was called the table of showbread, also called the table of the presence. And on that table were 12 loaves of bread, probably signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. And Every seventh day, every Sabbath day, that bread was replaced with fresh bread. And God told Aaron and his sons, you need to eat that older bread, the bread that's being replaced, and consume it. And I think that's so cool because what does bread signify? It signifies nourishment and life. The table of the presence. Not the kind of presence like gifts, but the kind of presence like a person. So whose presence are we talking about? Whose presence was already there? Well, look at John 6, 32 through 35. It says, Jesus said to them, 
What I'm about to tell you is true. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread from now on. Then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever go hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Man, what a promise. The table of the presence. Or I would actually call it the table of hope, too, right? The hope that one day anybody would be able to enter the most holy place and be in the presence of God because the curtain would be torn by the power of Christ's death and resurrection. That's, where, that's how we're living today or should be living. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Actually, it might be 21 because I took out a little bit. It says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And it goes on to say a little bit more about Jesus being our high priest. Jesus made a way. He's our forever mediator. The curtain's no longer there, but we act like it is. So let's just say that Jesus, our hope, our rock, has always been there, and he will always be there. It's always been about him, and we're invited to his table every day. And we don't have to follow all the rules and the law that the Israelites did because we're not under the law. The curtain has been torn. We have free access to be in his presence. But, and it's a big but, we have to take a seat. We actually have to sit and rest at the table that God's invited us to. It's your responsibility. It's my own responsibility. It's not your spouse's responsibility to make you sit at the table. It's not the church's responsibility to make you sit at the table. And oftentimes we think it is. It's not the church's responsibility. We, the church can guide you there. The church can give you, you know, steps to get there. But you ultimately have to take your own seat. And I think we need to be aware of something. And it's this, that you have an enemy who wants to keep you from taking your seat at the table. Because when you're at that table, you will experience the presence of God. And listen, God being present and you being in his presence and experiencing his presence are two different things because God's always with us. He never leaves us. That's a, that's a promise. But that doesn't mean that you're living your life daily in his presence because there are spiritual forces at work that are trying to keep you from taking your seat at that table. And you know what? We know, as Christians, I think we've learned this. We know the devil is a liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. There's no truth in him. But did you also know that he is a counterfeit? He will counterfeit everything that God does. God has a table for you. He's invited you to the table, but the enemy's all over that. He's like, all right, God's got a table for you. Well, I'm going to set out a hundred tables for you, and I'm going to scatter them around your life so it's hard for you to even see the table you're supposed to be sitting at. And that's what he does. He sets out a bunch of tables for us because he wants us to choose his over God's. Because when we're in the, pre the presence of Jesus, we're also in the power of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? I mean that as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But you guys, we have to activate it. We have to ignite the Spirit inside of us. It's like a car battery. 
if the battery's not charged, the car is not going to be able to fulfill its purpose. We have to charge it up, and how do we do that? We do it by being in the presence of Jesus. And we have an enemy who wants to keep us from doing that. And I want to talk about one table that I believe the enemy sets before us that I think actually leads to all the other tables, and that's the table of distraction. And I put the word up on the screen because, as you see, there's a word within a word here, and the Lord spoke to me about it. See, he wants to give us traction in our Christian walk. And it's the kind of traction that even when trials come, even when pain and suffering and death and unthinkable things happen to you, you will have traction and you won't lose your footing. But the devil wants to redirect you. And when we take our eyes and our focus off of Jesus, he gets his opportunity to do that. And we lose our traction. Scripture says that Jesus is the rock. When we stand upon him and him alone, we are steady and our feet will not be moved. We will have traction. But when we get distracted, it's like we're stepping onto what? It's like we're stepping onto sand. And what does sand do? It sinks, it shifts, it moves. And then we start flailing around because now we're focused on everything else rather than what we should be. And we start getting filled up with anxiety and fear and worry. So I think today I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what's distracting me? What's pulling me away from the table of his presence? And I know many of you are sick of hearing this one, but I felt God put it on my heart, and I'm going to be obedient. But social media. And listen, if you just had a little bit of defensiveness rise up in you, that means it's a distraction for you. So let's be honest. Is that something in your life that's pulling you away from spending time with God? And hear me, you could be using social media for God, and that's good. Don't stop because it's a great tool, you know, to share the gospel and encourage people. But if it's affecting the time you spend with God, you might need to rethink it. And then what about this one, you guys? In our culture, in America, this is so prevalent today, activities and busyness. Are you so busy to the point that you don't even have time to rest? Because if you have very little time to rest, how could you ever be taking time to sit at God's table? Will we really experience the presence of God when we're always busy and always doing things? We can even be doing things for God, and that's good. But doing things for him and being with him are different. See, our lives can be filled up. We can just fill our days to the max. But do we ever stop to examine the condition of our hearts? Are we stopping at all to look at the condition of our spiritual lives? I mean, how is your heart? I, I'm sincerely asking you guys, how is your heart? Because sometimes we get so distracted, we're not even paying attention to what's going on in there. I mean, your life might be full, but is your heart full? And if it is full, what is it full of? Because we can fool ourselves into believing we're okay when we're not. I believe that distraction is one of the main tools that the enemy is using today in our culture to keep you from God's will. Because listen, if he can distract you with the small things, 
then when the crap hits the fan, he's going to use that to his advantage, and he's going to be like, here's some tables for you to sit at. Here's two big ones, worry and fear. I mean, come on. How many people of you, how many people here today, every single day, are confronted with worry and fear? I am. I mean, especially parents, I think, we're constantly worrying and fearing about our kids. But look at Philippians 4.6. Oh, before I read that, I want to say this. So worry and fear are honestly just a part of this life because we live in the world. The world is full of all sorts of crazy stuff, all sorts of bad news that's literally right at our fingertips to read about it and look at it. So we're constantly confronted with those things. But Philippians 4.6 says, do not be anxious. Okay, worry and fear fall in that category. Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. Do not be fearful about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I, I forget to do that like a thousand times a day. But I'm challenging myself, and I'm challenging you to start doing that. Because honestly, the past couple weeks, um, well, Joel was diagnosed on March 19th. So since then, you know, worry and fear literally have been coming like darts at me every single day, multiple times a day. And it's been a battle. And I want to give you an example of um, a way that I'm battling it. And it has to do with obedience to God's voice. So one night I was just lying awake in bed because it, Joel had, um, his blood sugar had dropped around 3 o'clock in the morning. And we gave him a juice, and he was fine. But just before that, Brennan had gotten up, and he was up sick puking. And I, as I was lying there back in bed, I was like, oh, my gosh, Lord, what if this, what if that? You know, Joel can't be sick. It could actually end, us, end him in the hospital. How can I do this, God? What in the world is going on? I cannot do this. Why are you doing this, God? that kind of woe is me thing. And I just felt this heaviness start to come over me. And I heard God say, not in his audible voice, but in my spirit, I heard God say, get up and spend time with me. And I'm thinking, it's 4 o'clock in the morning by now. I was exhausted. I didn't want to get up. And I heard him say, get up and spend time with me. And so I did. I forced myself up because I, I felt he was telling me that forced myself out of bed, went into the living room, opened my Bible. I read for a few minutes, <coughs> and then I closed my Bible, and I just, I cried out to God, and I just laid my heart out, you guys. I was like, these are my worries. These are my fears. I am doubting you, God, like tons of doubts, anger, all this ugliness coming out of me towards God. Did you guys know you can be real with God? Did you know that he wants all of it. He wants everything you've got. He doesn't want these polished up prayers that we like to give him. He doesn't want just this halfway open heart. He wants all of you. And I, I gave all of me to him that night. Because you know what? I am desperate for God's presence in my life at this point. And I said, God, you better show up. You better speak to me right now because I am ready to just throw in the towel and quit and walk away from this life because it's too hard. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give him one more chance. <laughs> and I opened up, <laughs> I opened up my um, Bible verse on my phone. And I'm thinking, he better, he better speak to me. 
And this is what I read. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. That's from John 14, 27. He spoke to me through his word. He showed up. He answered my prayer. But see, I positioned myself in that moment to be in his presence. I put myself in a place to be able to hear from him. Because see, there's something that usually precedes experiencing God's presence. There's something that usually precedes hearing his voice. And that's oftentimes the part we're too busy for or too tired for or too distracted for. Do you know what part I'm talking about? It's the seeking part. And the Bible has a lot to say about seeking God. And I'm going to share a couple scriptures. Psalm 63.1 says, You, God, are my God earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. That's how I felt lately. Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. I love that. And then 1 Chronicles 16, 11 says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually continually. We should never stop seeking the Lord. So what does that look like? What does seeking God actually look like? Well, it starts with his word. You guys, we need to be filling ourselves up with the nourishment that comes from sitting at the table of his presence through his word and through prayer, through communicating with God. And I believe if you do those things, it will it eventually give you a desire to praise and worship him. Even in hard times, your hands will be lifted because you're, you know that you are serving a God who saves and a God who helps you overcome. So how are you positioning yourself to experience God's presence? What things do you have in place to ensure that you're in a position daily to hear from God? Because I'm telling you, it has to be intentional or you won't do it. You guys, uh, we are so distracted. There's so many things we're filling ourselves, our lives up with that it's 10 o'clock at night and we're like, oh, I never even read a Bible verse. But really, you think a Bible verse is, is what's going to get you through? If I had continued that night as I was lying in bed, if I had continued to feast on worry and fear and ignore the prompting of God to get up and seek him, I would have missed out on God showing up, on God counseling me and speaking truth in my life. Because when that happened, honestly, I felt peace. I felt like all that stuff was scared off by the word of God. Because see, listen, the enemy was trying to use worry and fear to distract me. Because, see, he wanted me to take a seat at those tables and start feasting on lies. But God wants us to bring everything, our worries, our fears, our depression, even our sin, every ugly part of you, he wants you to bring it to the table. And you know why? Because he has the remedy. So we'll, we'll either feast on lies that will feed all that junk in our lives, or we're going to feast on the truth that will conquer it. 
Distraction is a killer, you guys. And a great example of distraction in scripture is the story of Mary and Martha. I know a lot of you have heard this story, but Mary and Martha were the sisters of Lazarus, um, the Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead. And all three of them were disciples of Jesus. They were devoted followers of Jesus. But I want to look at this story. So Luke 10, 38 through 40. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She was distracted. She was busy in the kitchen. She's thinking, Jesus is here. Everything has to be perfect. And, and we have to be real careful of that because sometimes the things we're doing for God are actually distracting us from being in his presence. It goes on to say in Luke 10, verse 40, she came to Jesus, so Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? And I'm saying it like that because that's how she probably said it. Tell her to come and help me. You guys, as I was reading this scripture over and over again, I thought, oh my goodness, Martha had some big ones. She knew who Jesus was, and she's telling him what to do. Wow. So in this instance, in this instance, her distraction is actually leading somewhere else. The enemy is using distraction to lead her to another table, and it's the table of discouragement. See, she's discouraged because Mary's not helping her, It's causing her to feel upset, causing her to think, nobody appreciates me. Nobody sees the importance in what I'm doing. She was distracted. Now she's discouraged to the point that she doesn't even see any value in sitting at the feet of Jesus and being in his presence. See, she was seeking fulfillment through doing, and we all do that. We think, you know, the more we do, the harder we work, the more blessed we'll be. If I try a little harder, maybe somehow I'll avoid difficult things in my life. And then when things don't pan out the way you thought they would, it's, Satan's like, okay, I'm going to use this opportunity. Come sit here. Come sit here. He'll even kick the chair out for us. Take a load off. Pull up a seat to discouragement. What do we feast on at that table? Negativity is one of the big ones that we feast on at the table of discouragement. And that's exactly where Martha was. She was already feasting on it. But listen to what Jesus said in Luke 10, 41 through 42. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. See, Jesus was saying, Martha, Martha, you got it all wrong. The table isn't in the kitchen. It's at my feet. It's in my presence. This is where you get nourishment. This is where you get full. It's not in what you're doing. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your title. It's not in the car you drive or your college degree or your lack of a college degree. It's at my feet. It's in my presence. The table of his presence. 
And we have an invitation, you guys. It's open-ended. We get to show up whenever we want, and we can take a seat at this table, and we can fill ourselves up with the truths and the promises of an eternal Father who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-giving, and provides every single thing we need. That's the table I want to be sitting at. The Bible says that God even prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. We can be surrounded by the enemy who's trying to use all sorts of things to distract us and pull us away from the table. But when we take a seat at the table of his presence, we're going to be able to see all those tables for what they really are and their lies. See, when you're filled up with the truth, you're going to be able to keep your eyes on Jesus. And listen, I'm not saying that through our lives, we're not going to be faced with hard things, discouragement, depression, sadness, stress, whatever. We're, we're going to be faced with those. But what I am saying is that it's not God's will for you to pull up a seat at those tables and sit there. You know, we might stop and nibble a little bit, but as long as you're staying focused on Jesus and his word and his truth, you will press on and you will overcome. Mary saw the value in sitting at the Lord's feet. She saw value in his words and in his presence, and I believe that's what made her have so much insight on the night that she anointed Jesus with perfume. She truly understood who Jesus was. And I'm going to read this to you. It's John 12, 1 through 8. It says, Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often took and stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So she pours this expensive perfume onto Jesus' feet and uses her hair to clean his feet. I think that's a beautiful picture of love. And there was a commentary I read as I was studying for this. Okay, this commentary, you guys, I'm going to email the guy after this, but, and it's not in a good way. So in his commentary, this is what he says. He says, some scholars wonder if the use of her hair had an erotic tone to it. It does cause an eyebrow to be raised. Hmm. Are you kidding me? Odds are this guy doesn't think women should preach either. You know, he's probably one of those. But I'm thinking, really, this is a woman who loved Jesus. She was his disciple, and she knew his time was near. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 11:15? It says that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It's 
a glory to her. Do you know what I think Martha was saying? I think she was saying, Lord, all glory is yours. All glory and praise and honor belong to you, Lord. This hair of mine, this hair of mine that's considered my glory, that's considered desirable, is nothing in comparison to even your feet, the feet that I have sat at, listening, learning, and feasting on every word that you spoke. It wasn't an erotic action. It was devotion. Mary was obviously someone who knew where the table was. She knew it was in his presence. She knew it was at his feet. She was saying, what you view as important is nothing but rags, and I am honored to wipe the feet of my Lord with these rags because it's all about Jesus. As we close here, you guys, this next song is so good and so powerful, and I want you just to really soak it in. And I want to encourage all of you today. You know, if you're in a place in your life where you're just feeling empty, you, maybe you need strength, maybe you need hope, maybe you need a miracle, maybe there's a mountain in front of you and you need to, it to be moved. Well, where do you think you're going to find the answers to those things? You are not going to find it in the world. What the world has to offer you is empty, and it will fade. The only place you're going to find it is in the presence of Jesus. If you are in need of anything, you take your seat, and I promise you God will provide. It may not be in the way that you think he should, but he will provide. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for your presence. What a gift, Lord, that Jesus has torn the curtain and that we have access to be in your presence every day. Lord, let us not fail in that area. Let us get our lives right and let's get the right perspective. Help us, God. There should never be a day that goes by as a Christian, that we are not daily nourishing ourselves in your word, Lord. God, convict us where we need conviction. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.